installment of our podcast series Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Connolloin. In recent times, there's been a palpable increase of interest in mycology and its importance both in our lives and indeed in the life of our planet. The soil in our woodlands has been branded the wood wide web or the rhizosphere. Yet very little is really known about many aspects of mycology, the world of fungi and mushrooms. We in FASTA often apply concepts such as complexity, ecology, systems thinking and so on to the problems facing our planet. However, mycology can offer new insights For example, how nature has evolved complex symbiotic relationships, how a plant and a fungus can make themselves attractive to each other to form a mutually beneficial relationship, and in so doing are hugely beneficial to the air we breathe and the soil under our feet. Of course, many fungi are delicious and health-giving to boot. In this podcast, we will take our first steps into this little-known part of nature, guided by Bill O'Dea. Bill is a passionate Irish mycophagist who's been running and participating in mushroom foraging hunts and various training and presentation events, both in Ireland and abroad, for more than 25 years. Bill particularly enjoys sharing his knowledge and has been featured widely on national radio and television and media of all types in Ireland. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about your own journey to mycology and mushrooms and how did it all start and how did you get to where you are today? I suppose, Sean, it started with probably at an early age with my parents in Galway going out to, I remember they used to bring us out to, I was brought up in Salt Hill, but they used to bring us out to um, East Galway looking for sheep in the fields to pick field mushrooms. And I have fond memories of that. And I, I remember, you know, in those days you'd have, the, well, the delight of finding mushrooms in the field. And, but you'd also, you'd have kids standing at the side of the road with strings of mushrooms that you could, people would pull over in the car and buy them. And, you know, getting home then and cooking those mushrooms and they, the memory of the taste, you know, it was great. And we all loved them. And so that would probably be my start. And then to a certain extent then, because I was very interested in nature, as a kid and I knew all the birds and the trees and things like that and I was curious and I I found other mushrooms and brought them home and thought everyone would be delighted and uh, they looked like field mushrooms but of course the reaction in Ireland as you could predict was oh my god those things could be poisonous they could kill us all you know you have to bring them down to the bottom of the garden and bury them and and that was the kind of general attitude in Ireland and which was typical as fungophobic society then I went on and I lived in the States for years and I liked to cook and that and people brought me mushrooms. I think morels actually were the, in the Midwest where they have a tradition of it because there's you've got um, Scandinavian people with Scandinavian culture and background and traditions. And then, I, you know, I, I got more and more interested. And when I came back to Ireland, ultimately, I studied at UCD under, at the time, there was a professor of mycology in UCD. And I did a, a kind of a night class, extracurricular kind of class under him, which was great. And I learned more about it. And then I started doing mushroom hunts and kind of 
conveying that knowledge to others. But it was uh, mainly with the emphasis being on foraging and eating and celebrating and taste and that kind of thing. Why do you think mycology in a, in a, in a broader sense is important? Uh, why is it important, and particularly in Ireland? It's massively important because it more or less touches everything in our lives, from medicine, antibiotics to, you know, there are other medical uses. There's our foods, you know, anything that's fermented or cheeses, breads, beer, wine, obviously. And in fact, there's lots of things. They even use mushrooms to take the bitterness out of orange juice in, in supermarkets, produce foods, I think processed orange juices as well. Fungi have been very useful to us, but yet they reckon there could be millions of different fungi. The, the figures vary, but I think the last figure I heard was around 10 million or something different types of fungi. But they've only discovered, they've only named about 150,000 of them. So it's pervasive and everywhere from the deepest part of the ocean to the highest part of Mount Everest, there's fungi and it's all got its own specialization and uses and fungi use all kinds of strong enzymes and that to achieve what they do. And the other thing they do is they sequester carbon and they fix carbon in the soil. So there, if you want a, an area people are focusing on today, that's important. That one is, alone is usually significant. You did mention Irish people being, I know what you call it, mushroom phobic Fung or fungophobic. Fungo is the kind of, it's a nice buzzword. And would you have any explanation? I would hint at the link between, if you like, our ambivalent relationship to forests and woodlands and how, to a certain extent, we are a little bit phobic to that. But at the same time, we very much like them. Have you any ideas where this comes from and the lack of knowledge about them compared to Eastern yeah. Europeans or even in general? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, one of them being that we're an island, an island culture, shall we say. So if you think about the practicalities of if you're on an island and people eat mushrooms and there's a few bad experiences where people are poisoned, then the wisdom becomes don't eat those. The only one we know that doesn't poison you is this one. But any time we've eaten any, you know, we're not sure which other ones are poisoning people. And so if, if that's it, if you're on an island and then that knowledge in a small population becomes the de facto kind of learned knowledge. But if you're, say, in France and your tribe is your Catalans or something and you're, you pick certain mushrooms, then you're trading with the guys who live up the road. And, you know, you trade some mushrooms with them and you trade other things with them, probably. And they have other mushrooms that they've learned about and they're swapping knowledge. And so I think it's in that kind of environment, it's more likely that a few bad experiences aren't going to stop them because mm. they can still learn the safe mushrooms from others. And it's definitely something we should be eating. I mean, nutritionally, mushrooms are very good for us and, and one would say almost essential for selenium and things like that. You also mentioned there about the soil and what goes on underground. And I know there's an increasing volume of good books being written about what's called the wood wide web and the rhizosphere. And can you open the door to what's going on under the ground before we go on well, to the benefits mm -hmm. and why they're important? Yeah. 
So underground on a healthy lawn or in a forest that's not being sprayed, you've got these different types of fungi and they're little microscopic threads and they pervade all through the ground and they're all performing different roles and there are different species and different types. And there are actually, they say like under, under your footprint, there could be thousands of kilometers of these threads. And they're working with the, the bacteria and the, the little worms, the nematodes and all the things in the soil, because soil is a living thing. And so on that basis, then you've got a, a few other things going on. Some of those fungi are what they call mycorrhizal symbiotic relationships with trees and tree roots and plants. They're attached to those roots and they're taking nutrients to those plants and trees. Because if you think about it, obviously trees and plants can't move, but yet they have to sustain themselves in the same piece of ground. So what's happening is that the nutrients are being moved around on the ground by the fungi. And there are fungi that are specific to particular types of trees and plants. And then there are fungi that are general and they can exchange nutrients with other fungi and that they become like brokers. So in, in a woodland, you can have one fungi that's specific to the oak tree and it's giving or taking nutrients from another fungi in the middle that's then giving or taking nutrients from, say, a beech tree. You know, so you have this incredibly complex interaction going on through the fungi underground. And so when you see how it works, it's quite amazing. But not only are they doing that, but then above ground, you've got the saprotrophic fungi working on breaking down all the litter, the, the dead wood, the branches that fall, the trees that fall, and all the leaves. And they're all being broken down by these enzymes that they have. And then they're brought back into the soil in the form of nutrients that can be absorbed by the fungi in the soil and fed back to the trees. When you see how this works with fungi, it makes you realize how nature works in general and how complex it is and how we have this simplified view of this is something we control and we're superior to. But really, when you, when you see the, the beauty of what's actually going on, it's, it's quite amazing. I also understand that fungi can have sexual relations inside any one particular type. Can you yes. give us any insights into that? Well, I mean, you brought, brought us down this one now. So I, I, I wasn't going to bring up such things. but anyway. <laughs> so, so when we get to sex, I know a little bit about it. Fungi, I suppose you can say, have hundreds of different sexes. So they have multiple different ways of coupling and I suppose reproducing. Now, I don't know much more about how that works, but I know that the experts say that they have hundreds of sexes. As of course, we have two, they have hundreds. So yeah. God knows that the mind, the mind boggles as what they could get up to hundreds of sexes. The relationships or interconnections are much more complex in this living soil, uh, the soil biota, I think they mm. call it, where the, you've got all these different life forms and relationships and interactions going on. Uh, and yeah. fungi seem to be at the heart of all this. Yeah, they do. And they seem to be almost orchestrating it. I mean, intelligence is probably the wrong, probably not an adequate word to describe it, but it's what seems like intelligence to us in how this is all being orchestrated. And this, the idea of trees exchanging nutrients through the fungal network. Now the foresters think of trees as families, as opposed to kind of rows of trees, you know, so they understand that they see that they're helping each other and boosting each other. And when times are hard for some trees, the other trees can give up to give to them. And that's all being orchestrated through the, the fungal 
network. You mentioned earlier on carbon sequestration, and that would be very much a, if you like, one of the foundations that FASTA would be looking at in terms of a sustainable planet about how we manage carbon. And fungi are, again, key players in this. I don't know if you'd say a word about it or not. I, I was giving a talk recently and I showed a picture of a typical aerial shot of rural Ireland. And you have your 40 shades of green, you know, you have all of this patchwork of different greens. And these are all agricultural fields that are being used for grazing and I suppose different types of crops and different purposes and that. And that seems to involve sprays and, and it seems to involve fungicides a lot. And we're actually at the stage, of, a farmer was telling me this, that when you pull a plough these days across a field, you don't get clouds of birds anymore. You know, when I was a kid, you'd get clouds of birds behind the plough because it was all the worms and that were being brought up to the surface. And now there are no worms and you can be sure there is no fungi either. And fungi sequesters carbon and fungi builds its filaments, its hi-fi and its mycorrhizal threads under the ground. It's using carbon to do that. And that's fixing the carbon in the soil. It's getting carbon from the trees and the plants and all of that. And so the fungal network in the soil is a carbon bank. And we have in the last 50 years, I suppose, more or less wiped out that entire carbon bank. You know, if you think about most of the agricultural land seems to now be rendered dead and without fungi, they're not, they're, they're seen as the enemy, not as the, the friend. So it's hard to believe that people are talking about buying electric cars to save the planet or save the human race. The entire most of the country is fungi and uh, has been killed in the soil. I, I think that's just incredible. And that's no wonder we are where we are. And I mean, it's it, the more you, you go to the United States, there are whole states that are massive corn farms that are purely generated on specific types of corn that are resistant to the poisons they put down to kill everything else. And so their soil again is dead. I think it's incredible that people aren't aware of this. So would you have any suggestions about how we can improve the awareness? I know maybe we can talk in a second about your foraging courses and training, mm. uh, but do you find when you're doing that, that people who are there are aware of what you've just said? Or no, is, no. no they're, they're not. And most of them are shocked. Culturally, I think we're just conditioned to be consumers and, and we're all looking for ways of changing. You know, we won't be flying to Thailand anymore. We're going to have to go to Spain instead you know, <laughs> to, to save the planet. I think people right now are conditioned to get for this message. I think that this message 10 years ago might have been less, people might have been less, less inclined to care or, or think about it. Could you just talk us through what you would normally go through on one of your foraging courses? You do quite a bit, or what, what's your impression about yeah. over the years? What have you learned from them? Because you've done quite a few, haven't you? Yeah, I've been doing it for over 20 years. It's, it's like, you know, I stopped, stopped counting things when I get to about 20 years, but a bit over 20 years. And um, basically what we do is, so we cover some of what we've just been talking about, kind of the context. We focus on what we call mycophagy, which is an interest in fungi from the point of view of eating. And um, so we kind of cover and things like what we've just been speaking about, but also medicinal fungi and um, other uses of fungi and the nutritional makeup of mushrooms, eating mushrooms. Um, and then we get on to edible mushrooms and identifying edible mushrooms. And we also then go on to the very poisonous mushrooms and how to identify them and the effects that they can cause. 
the idea is that we bring people through and kind of say this is kind of what we're looking for this is what we're we don't want to reach and then and then we say this is how you identify them and then we go out and we do a mushroom hunt and we come back with mushrooms and we do a kind of an identification workshop and we take out some of the eaters and we eat them and you know cook them up on pans and we often have guest chefs with us and we bring guest experts with us and that's the kind of day that we do and really you know if people can learn maybe four or five mushrooms confidently on the day then i think that's as good a job as we can do and how would you compare mushrooms in ireland to for example mushrooms in france where there would be a much richer knowledge and probably people are gathering mushrooms much more much more often than we do in ireland but do we have as many or we do uh it's yeah it's funny i didn't say that we we talked about us being microphobic but i mean we also do mushroom hunts in france italy spain different regions of spain um as far away as turkey duania uh and different places and there you have mushroom festivals you have a culture that celebrates mushrooms in season. And so it's completely different to here. And funny, you know, it's, and you'll see this from a lot of the Polish and Eastern European people who live with us now, you can see how the the knowledge they have and the passion that they have for mushrooms. But, you know, even, I mean, if you were say in the Czech Republic or Poland or somewhere like that in the mushroom season, People are out. By the time the sun has, has has come up in the morning, they've taken all the edible mushrooms. There, you know, there's people go have their spots, and they they all know, and they all they're all looking for them. So they pick massive amounts of them. But it doesn't have any effect on the on the numbers. You know, they still you still have lots of mushrooms there. In fact, I think that in some of the places that we visited, there are there seems to be more mushrooms, the good edible mushrooms, well, all kinds of mushrooms than we see in Ireland. And I think it's probably to do with the heat in the soil. I think heat is probably good for mushroom production. So you want heat and humidity is the other thing. You need humidity. And so some places like parts of Spain and that they have to wait for the rain to come at the end of the summer when it starts to cool down or the rain comes. But the soil has been warm. And I think that promotes a lot of growth of of, uh, mushrooms, which Mushrooms, by the way, are just the fruiting body of the organism. Um, mm. well, we've, we've been talking about all these threads under the soil. That's the main organism. It's like if you look at a fairy ring on the grass, that's a, a single organism. And the fairy ring is the edge of it where it's spreading and it's putting out its enzymes and generating nutrients and the grass is benefiting from it. And then under the right circumstances, mushrooms are, are produced and the mushrooms are just they're just a fruiting body so they're like the apple on a tree and many of them should be eaten they're intended to be eaten i mean the obvious one would be truffles for example if a truffle isn't dug up and eaten then it hasn't done its job in terms of spreading the spores we in FASTA and a number of the organizations looking at sustainability would be very fond of the word ecology or ecological. And certainly people would be looking at complexity, complex adaptive system, even thinking about systems. And would you see parallels there that you'd like to highlight? Or how do you see 
this all this complex world under the surface, which we're destroying, the modern economy is destroying. What, what are the parallels that would come to mind or what can we learn from mycology? Yeah, it's, I think symbiosis, I suppose, is a nice one to try and work together. I think the more you look into this, what, what it's funny, what happens with a lot of people that come on our mushroom events, they get a bit of an interest and then they, they realize, my God, this, this is incredible because the more I go into this, the more fascinating it becomes. It's a complex way that works. And if you break it or if you remove something, then it's the consequences are unpredictable. And I think many of the problems we have in the world with, God knows, viruses and things like that can be a result of things having been broken. And when you look at the over farming and over intensive farming of animals and, and not allowing an animal to be an animal, I mean, look at the, the noble salmon and what's become of the salmon. And I think that, that there must be respect for things should be allowed to be what they are. A dog should be a dog and a cat should be a cat and, and, and a chicken should be a chicken that runs around and, and eats what chickens want to eat, not what humans think they should be eating. And I know that's kind of sounds a bit naive, but I'm, I'm not naive, by the way, in terms of, uh, but I think there is a way, you know, when you see that we are throwing out, they say a third of our food is, is, is thrown out in the Western world, I assume. But yet everyone's saying, yeah, I know, but we, well, what about we have to produce enough food for the, the population in the world? We, there isn't enough food. We've got to get more intensive production. You think about it, you can buy two steaks for six euros in, in the in the supermarkets now. You know, you buy packs of two steaks for six euros. Is that benefiting someone? I, when I was a kid, we, we might have get steak once a week if we were lucky. And so we've kind of generated something out of balance. There's a Hopi Indian word called Koyanaskatsi, which there's a great documentary that covers that. It, it shows just images of the modern world. It's an old film now, but it's still still relevant. There have been a few follow-ups to it. I think Samsara is another one. There's a couple of others. When something's out of sync, you have problems and you end up with unintended consequences. And we think we're the ones that are in control, but we're not actually. Is, is it working for us? I think this idea of corporates with unlimited need to grow is very damaging because it means that the best people in, in the best universities are being recruited into the best jobs with the goal of growing the shareholder value by 10 or 20% per annum year on year, no matter what it takes, cut costs, get more resources. And, and, and it's all feeding off the limited resources we have on the planet. You'd make a good FASTA member, Bill, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the mushroom industry in Ireland, I was looking at it recently. So it's the largest horticultural sector in Ireland. You know, it's worth 120 million euro 85% of which is exported to the UK and it employs three and a half thousand people. In 2005, there were 157 growers in Ireland and now there are 34. So there's been a collapse of the number of growers, but the volume hasn't changed very much at all. If you like the, the value of the exports, it's probably gone up. And as you know, recently, there have been lots of issues about using peat that is extracted in Ireland, which we're saying we shouldn't be doing it from an environmental point of view. Uh, and we're importing peat from different parts of the world so that they can continue to grow the mushrooms in the way they do it in an industrial way. Would you, would you have any comments on that or what's your perspective on that? 
Well, I think it's the same. It's the same issue. It's the unlimited growth based on limited resources. I think monotone mushrooms are the third largest mushroom producer in the world. Um, they have huge presence in the United States and, and, and a significant presence in China as well. I don't know what, what whether they export those production methods or how that works. I think it's the issue about limited resources versus unlimited, the requirement for unlimited growth. I don't know in terms of specifics of, of using peach and that for, for growing mushrooms. I think it's interesting to see, I mean, all these things are being commoditized to the point where there's very little profit on it. I, that's, that kind of explains why you're getting fewer producers. They have to be bigger and bigger at squeezed margins into supermarkets. I mean, I'm buying, you can get in one of the supermarkets up the road here for a half kilo of mushrooms is 49 cents. It's very cheap, and but it's I don't see that it's, it's sustainable. And what's subsidizing that? Something is subsidizing that. You know, if you think about it, that those mushrooms are, are shipped around the place. There's a lot of energy used. They have to heat, they sterilize the substrate that they, you know, so there's quite a bit of energy used to do that. And then they're kept in tunnels. They're, well, they're heat controlled and humidity controlled. So they've got complete environment control systems running on electricity and that. There's a lot involved in producing them and to be able to get them into a supermarket at that price. Isn't it paradoxical uh, what you said at the beginning about us killing all the natural uh, living things under the soil and making it dead? And then we go and we use a lot of peat, which is also sustaining life to create mushrooms that you just talked about. And then we sell them for 49 cents. Uh, yeah. you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. <laughs> we should be learning this from the oil era, the oil bubble that really facilitated all of us going all around the world for very little money um, on aircraft and that. And we, we thought, this is great, or, you know, this is, this is cheap, but there is a price to pay. You know, people weren't anticipating or didn't really care about that, but now they're beginning to realize it. And it's funny because we're about to embark, or we have embarked on the next destruction around the production of batteries and that they're, they're going to have to, you know, they're talking about mining these rare earths and things that they use in batteries, mining them at the bottom of the ocean and things like that, to, you know, that they're going to have to get these things from anywhere they can. And that's going to open up a whole other destruction of, of ecosystems in some places that we, we've never been, like the bottom of the ocean. Would you say if the Irish culture was more open to mycology and, and there were more people gathering mushrooms and it was just a more normal thing to do, could it be a significant source of nutrition? I mean, are there enough of them out there, if you like, in the wild that would actually really contribute to people's diets in a meaningful way? Yes. Yeah, yeah, there is actually. A friend of mine has just gone through a year of living off wild foraged food. And yeah. a huge amount of that was mushrooms. She's writing a book about it. She's, and she's been monitoring her microbiome all the way through it. And uh, she's certainly in age by looking at her, she looks 10 years younger. And, um, <laughs> he's, uh, but yeah, there's, there are lots of, I mean, we, humans consume very few of the fungi, the, the mushrooms that are produced, very few are consumed by humans. 
And people go on about people over over foraging and damaging fungi and that, but it's it's not evident. And there was a study done in Switzerland about that a few years back. They were saying that the over walking was doing more damage to the fungi than picking the mushrooms because they were compacting the soil in places that got a lot of footfall in the forest. They were finding that was having more negative effect on the fungi in the soil than picking the mushrooms. But yet it seems to be fashionable, particularly in the UK, that they're criticizing foraging. Mushrooms rot anyway. They're only they're only around for a brief amount of time. If you look at the production of a mushroom, which is the fruiting body, and you look at these tiny little threads under the ground that produce the mushroom. And I heard a nice comparison where someone said that it's, it's similar to a human putting their hand out and growing the Empire State Building out of their hand. The scale of these fungi growing a mushroom from these small threads. And again, that gives you a good example of, of what's going on and how incredible these things are. What are your thoughts about mycology in the future, particularly in Ireland? What would you like to see happening or what's your blue sky for mycology? Well, I'd like to see that a professor being appointed in one of the universities, I suppose, to, to show some form of priority. But I think that people are learning more and more about it. It's becoming more mainstream. A lot of the other sciences are including mycology. And I know that one of my sons is doing science in UCD. I think the future looks good. I think mycology is becoming more relevant to people in general. And I don't know if you'd agree with that, because in my world, it's it's relevant anyway. But films like that, uh, the Fantastic Fungi, a lot of people have seen that. And so there's a lot of interesting, entertaining, informative stuff around that, getting people more aware of mycology and fungi and all the, the different things that they do for us, do for the planet. That was Bill O'Dea, a mycophagist who's been running mushroom hunts in Ireland and abroad since 1996. Among the many books which have opened readers' eyes to fungi and the world of mycology are Entangled Life by Marilyn Sheldrake, Radical Mycology by Peter McCoy, and Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Seamard. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word about our series Bridging the Gaps and keep an eye out for our next instalment at the end of December. Many thanks to Bill O'Dea for his participation and to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Mm-hmm.